from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. This week's show is about political art of all kinds. I chose to use an undisclosed studio to focus on the task of embedding in a single painting all the mindless, radical, and dangerous atrocities of the Obama administration. That declaration comes from a 2012 video by a painter named John McNaughton describing a work of his called Obamination. McNaughton made his name as a protest artist during the last administration. His depictions of President Obama stepping on the Constitution, burning the Constitution, smiling as he looks out over a wrecked America, sold well and were widely shared online. But before any of that happened, John McNaughton was earning a living selling landscapes and religious scenes until 2008. You know, I got the idea for a painting called One Nation Under God uh, during the 2008 election. And, you know, I spent about six months gelling on it, thinking about it, and I finally said, I've got to paint this. I don't care if anybody even uh, is, has any interest in it, but I'm going to do it. And, and then it went on and went viral online uh, amongst some people that uh, were against the painting. And then from there, you know, at first I thought, oh, great, you know, this isn't what I want. I'm not a, <laughs> yeah. an activist. Yeah. Uh, and then it just – and then the tides turned and then the support became overwhelming and so I learned what it felt like to be an activist artist. Right. For, for I understand. And for listeners who may not know the painting, it is – it's in Washington and and Jesus uh, is at the center, I guess, holding a copy of the Constitution. And around him are past presidents back to the 18th, 19th century and then just a group of modern Americans. But but it's it's basically it's, – it's one nation under God with Jesus sort of, I don't know, sanctifying the Constitution. Well, yeah, and it was a very personal painting when I did it. I, uh, the idea is that I believe that the Constitution was divinely inspired, not that he wrote yeah, the Constitution. And, you know, we could we could spend an hour talking about how divine, not how divinely inspired it is, but how how whether or not the founders were religious, and most of them. Oh, I know, weren't I married, know. It, but you there's know. so much to, that you could be talked about. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, then you you. You know, you had this – you suddenly had a big new audience and so you, you thought like, whoa, there's a demand for this kind of realistic, politically uh, activist uh, work from the right and I'm going to meet that need? Is that how it went? I, I was surprised by the reaction to the painting. Uh, but we were still selling a lot of our uh, landscape and religious art and, uh, you know, I have to make a living. And, and honestly, a lot of the – political paintings I do, I don't really make a lot of money at it, although I have been surprised. I mean, I, I one time did a painting of Obama burning the Constitution. Right. You know, it was one of those days where I was, I really, I really want to make a statement. I really want to say how I feel. Yeah. And I, I didn't even have any intention of that painting uh, ending up anywhere. But I painted it. I posted it on Facebook. It went super viral, got picked up by Drudge Report, uh, on and on and on and on. And then I sold a ton of them. Uh, the so, reproduction, reproductions of that picture. Yeah. And yeah. I thought to myself, where do people hang this? 
You know, they're not going <laughs> to hang qu- it above their couch. They're question. not going to hang it in their bathroom. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of people buy art because it makes a statement about what they believe. Yeah. It's a very emotional thing. Yeah. So. Same reason they wear, wear T-shirts and stuff, I guess. There you go. <laughs> uh, over the years, I've talked to lots and lots of artists of various kinds, mostly mm-hmm. people of the left because that's what most artists that's are. What most of them are. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and, and often when, when the subject of political art comes up, I, I am skeptical. I have been skeptical. Like, that. Nah, mm, is if if you start off with with a political idea you're trying to make and that's why you do mm-hmm. art it doesn't necessarily do justice to the politics or the art do, do you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean i mean that's sort of the idea that's that's common among the art elite and the establishment is that there are certain things that you don't do as an artist you know you don't mix politics and religion for example uh, you know but art is meant to create an emotion right and what can create an emotion more than when you mix something that is so agitative to so many people you know and you look at some of the most famous paintings in history and a lot of them were very connected to politics these artists you know like uh, uh, Picasso and For Goya sure. and some of the ones yeah, they were great. very political. Yeah, exactly yeah, very political. And even Da Vinci and Michelangelo, they, they had their personal thoughts. Right. And so I'm not straying too far away from that, except that I am an anomaly in the art yeah, world yeah. because <laughs> yes, of are. my positions and the way I paint. I'm kind of breaking all the rules and really agitating a lot of people. I mean, I hear what the art critics say. Right. Your painting of The Forgotten Man, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, uh, shows right. this uh, ordinary guy unhappily morose on a bench in Washington, D.C., I guess despairing. Uh, All the past presidents are standing behind him. And Mm -hmm. off to the side, there's uh, then-President Obama with his back turned uh, and his foot on the Constitution. Now, you said that you had no intention to make that about race. It was just about whole small government and constitutionalism right, and all that. Right. But not like, everybody looks at everything through the lens of race. <laughs> well, no, but there's one black guy in this picture of the forty odd, and it's him, and and he's causing the problem. I mean, you see how people can say, "Hmm." Yeah, oh, oh, I can see how they do, but isn't it kind of? I mean, I see it as a silly argument because, hey. He's the first black president that we've had. But, you know, if you have, if you see the world through, uh, you know, there's racism problem and, and, and that, you know, if that's, if that's on the tip of your mind, then you will decipher this painting as something racist. Speaking of your painting, The Forgotten Man, which, by the way, was a phrase popularized by FDR during the Depression, here is Donald Trump striking that very chord in his victory speech after the November election. Every single American will have the opportunity to realize his or her fullest potential. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. So, John, when you heard that, did did you feel there was a relationship between who Trump was talking about and to and, and your painting? Well, I, I think that uh, Trump noticed something that was happening uh, during the election and that a lot of people who didn't normally come out and vote uh, were responding to his campaign. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've become good friends with Sean Hannity, who, you know, per- who buys my paintings. And uh, I've been talking to him. Has, how many paintings has he bought? Uh, quite a few. I, I won't say really? exactly. Like yeah. six? 
Uh, yeah, it's been it's well, more, but but I'll tell you this, you know, I've been talking to him about that forgotten man painting, and how important it was that I felt like it represented this time in history from our our standpoint, and and uh, he started talking about my painting on his radio show. One guy that I really like because of the themes of his work is my friend John McNaughton. His uh, signature painting is called the Forgotten Man. This is what this election was about for me. And uh, Donald Trump in his um, acceptance speech mentioned the forgotten man and woman. It's interesting that it's all kind of tied together like that. Um, now that Donald Trump is in, are you going to like shift more to, you know, religious, strictly religious and landscape pictures and like leave politics out well, of it? I don't know. It's hard to imagine myself not doing political art. I, I, I always paint the things that I'm the most interested in. And if, if Trump does something that I see as Hey, that's that's bothered that bothers me. I don't like that. I need to to say how I feel about it. Sure, I'll I'll paint something. John and I spoke right after Trump became president, and since then he's put his other work, religious and landscape painting, on hold. Pretty much everything's political these days. I called him up this week to talk about his Trumpist period and find out if it turns out anything about the president does bother him. Is that John? Yes. Hey, Kurt. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. Good. So, um, are these selling better or or the same or worse than your your anti-Obama paintings do? Oh, you know, it depends. I I have some pictures that that just don't sell as well, and then I have some that that sell so quickly I can't keep them in stock. And it was the same way during the Obama years. And I never know for sure what is a good seller. I, I don't worry about it too much because... You know, sometimes one I think is going to be real popular isn't. And what what has surprised you on both ends? Like, hey, I think this will do great, and it didn't, or and vice versa. <laughs> well, for example, the I did a painting back in March called "Respect the Flag," and it was during the the whole uh, fiasco with uh, Trump interjecting his opinions with the NFL protests, and and you know, a lot of Americans boycotted the Super Bowl and other things because they were frustrated with how the players were doing their thing and. And I thought, well, here's an interesting idea for a painting. So I had Trump standing in the on the football field holding a tattered flag as he attempts to wipe the mud off it. But I didn't expect much because the Super Bowl had passed and the season was over. And So I just painted this picture, put it out on the Internet, and it exploded. And I had a massive surge uh, to my website and selling a lot of prints, sold out of several editions. Totally unexpected. Has Sean Hannity bought any more? Last time we spoke, you wouldn't say exactly, but I, you, you indicated that he bought at least a half a dozen. Has he bought more? Not recently, uh-huh. but, uh, you know, we still talk. You know, I don't uh, rely on him for, for everything. I mean, this last picture I put out, I didn't even talk to him about it, and it was one of my best sellers. That, that's uh, the Crossing the Swamp? Yeah. So know, talk about that. one. I didn't really expect anything. I, yeah, so describe that. For, I prob- a lot of people have probably seen it in the press and social media, but describe it. Yeah, well, you know, it's a take, kind of a spin on the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. And I thought, you know, with all the talk about, about draining the swamp, wouldn't it be interesting to, to have Trump and his cabinet and some important people with him on that boat crossing the swamp? You know, because in my opinion, you're not going to drain the swamp in the sense that you're going to remove everybody that that you disagree with. The way Trump has been able to maneuver himself through Washington, it's kind of like he's crossing the swamp. 
So I had this fun idea of having them all, <clears throat> excuse me, all on the boat and have the alligators and the different vermin in the water. And, you know, I just, I was kind of chuckling as I painted the picture and uh, I just didn't expect the, the explosion that it had uh, when I released it. So crossing the swamp, that, of course, is a play on crossing the Delaware, the painting with George Washington, but it's also a play on Trump's constant campaign promise that he was going to drain the swamp, meaning not that you're going to get rid of people who disagree with you in the government, but that you're going to get rid of corruption. And come on, his Health and Human Services secretary wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars on unnecessary travel and security and whatnot. His his endorser in the House of Representatives was just indicted um, for insider trading. Uh, his swamp is is deepening and widening, if anything. Well, you know, there, there's swamp everywhere. And, and I think that, I mean, Trump can only do so much. A lot of a lot of draining the swamp will have to do with how the American people vote. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just really hard to do that when you, when Washington DC is so big and there's so many people doing so many things and so many people trying to, um, undercut the president that have an agenda. And, you know, we've seen that with the FBI and, uh, you know, I, I we've seen that I'm with just, one guy, two people at the FBI, but yeah, sure. Well, you got McCabe and you got, um, Strzok. And well, you have Strzok and you have you got Lisa Comey Page. and no, you, know, you don't. You have Comey who thought he was being lied to, but you know. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We could go on like this all, all day. I know, <laughs> I know, and it's okay. I, I don't mind if people have different views than me. It's, yeah, you know, we all kind of come to the table with our own paradigms, and and uh, you know, as an artist, I just express how I feel about what's going on in the country. Yeah. I know people are going to disagree. Yeah. Uh, you say you're working on, uh, you're about finished with another new one? I'm working on a new one about halfway through, and, you know, it just has to do with some of the things going on in the Democratic Party. It doesn't have Trump in the painting. And, really? Or it's going to be one of those paintings that they're going to love it or hate it, just like the other ones. <laughs> Let me imagine. I bet Nancy Pelosi is in it. Oh, you think? <laughs> what, what, is the, what, is the, what is the idea behind this painting? I don't want to give it away. Yeah, uh, I got the idea actually from some comments from some people uh, cri- criticizing some of my former paintings. You know, from the left. You know, and they said, "Well, why don't you paint this?" You know, wink, wink, laugh, laugh, and and I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I will. <laughs> so when you see it, uh, I mean, it's it's going to be humorous and it's same time going to make some people irritated, but. I don't care. It'll be fun. Uh, Well, thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Kurt. See ya. Bye. Bye. That was the artist John McNaughton talking with me from his home in Utah. Coming up... I wanted to create an image that sort of addressed the problem of gun violence in the United States without it being morbid, without it being bloody, without actually even showing a gun creating political art that lasts longer than the news cycle. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. A week ago, we lost one of the absolute American treasures, Aretha Franklin. Looking out on the morning rain 
In the course of a career that lasted half a century, Aretha Franklin had more than a hundred different singles that charted, made it to the Billboard bestseller list. She won 18 Grammys and sang for three different presidents in the White House. I think most people don't realize she was also a for-real civil rights activist. Toured to raise money for Martin Luther King, offered to put up bail for Angela Davis in 1970, and lots more. Some of her songs amount to a kind of rousing soundtrack for 1960s social change. Most memorably, the hit she released when she'd just turned 25, Respect. It had been written and recorded a few years earlier by Otis Redding as a very different song. The plea of a guy coming home from work and demanding respect from his wife. But as the 60s exploded, Aretha flipped that script. With her two sisters as backup singers, Aretha added the call and response and a few new key lines. In Aretha's 1967 version, the song acquired a, a new urgency and broader social meaning really instantly becoming an anthem for people demanding their due. A half century later, that era and its leaders and singers and creators still resonate and inspire. Inspire people like Tylon Sawyer, who's an artist in Aretha's hometown, Detroit. Sawyer draws and paints highly realistic portraits of African Americans, And setting out to address today's high-anxiety political moment, he looked back to the African-American pantheon of the 1960s and earlier. He calls his exhibit at Detroit's Namdi Center for Contemporary Art, American Gods. It consists of huge paintings, six or seven feet by four feet, of black people dressed in the crisp white shirts and sharp black suits of mid-century America. They hold masks over their faces, masks of people like Martin Luther King, Nina Simone, James Baldwin. Tylon Sawyer walked through the gallery with Ryan Patrick Hooper, a producer at public radio station WDET, to talk about his work. So this is the second part of the show. Um, So I want to introduce you to Tylon Sawyer. If you ever get the opportunity to have an artist walk you through their exhibition, you don't turn an offer like that down. We're at the Namdi Center for Contemporary Art in Detroit's Midtown neighborhood, and right off the bat, you're going to notice that it's not as sterile as other contemporary art spaces. The wood floors actually creak beneath your feet. It's a very warm space to see a contemporary art show, and it suits Tylon's latest body of work. So this is the Pieta. This is the one um, that a lot of people responded to. Um, So Pieta um, is Italian for pity. It's one of the four times throughout art history you will ever see the Virgin Mary sat, like in terms of religious painting. And so I was thinking about um, gun violence and the trauma that happens to little black boys in this country and being a black man and 
constantly having that as something in the back of my mind. And I wanted to create an image that sort of addressed the problem of gun violence in the United States without it being morbid, without it being bloody, without actually even showing a gun. It took a while to, to figure out this image, but I thought about the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta, which is in the Vatican, is probably the most famous one, but it's this image of Mary holding Jesus, and it's such a sad, endearing image, which, whether you're, you're Christian or not, the, the image of a mother holding her son is something that I think most people can resonate with. Tylon ended up asking his friend and her teenage son to pose for the painting. And the result is a technically stunning, large-scale portrait that's filled with emotion. It actually feels like it's staring through you at times. We have a mother, a black mother, draped in white, holding her son. um, And the mother's looking out at us very confrontationally, with this really sort of like sad, mournful look on her face. But there's still like a, there's still resolve there. Um, It's not a complete breakdown. Um, And she's holding her son, who's, um, I would say it's kind of ambiguous. I usually don't want to show, especially black people, dead in any image that I have. So... If anything, he's giving the impression of something about that. But um, I have him dressed in black with the hoodie on reminiscent of Trayvon, who has sort of become like a menonym for gun violence in the United States, especially against young black males in this country. Um, And she's presented in front of an American flag, which is showing you that even with all the greatness and um, spectacular things that this country has to offer, it also um, offers a lot of sorrow and misery, especially, you know, in the black community. Finding models for this painting was the easy part, breaking down the meaning behind their poses and some of the weight of the subject matter to a teenager was a little more challenging. And it was a really pretty complex image um, to put together because she had to unpack all this information for her son because she didn't want it to just be something that she did arbitrarily. She wanted him to be invested in it because hopefully this will be around forever. And it's important that he knows what he's standing for in this image. The entire show is comprised of work that I've done over the last year, starting with 2017. Um, There's one painting that's a little older, but everything else out of all of the work um, was done over a year. And um, just trying to create a body of work which focused on contemporary politics without being necessarily dated to an event that happens from moment to moment or from tweet to tweet. Um, if you walk into the gallery, you're going to see, uh, walk into the Rose Gallery, you're going to see these 10 drawings first of um, called the Golden Boy series, which is a series of drawings that I did, portraits um, of black men who've influenced the history of the United States um, and the image of black men in the United States. Uh, some for the good, some some not so good um, because humans are complicated that way Um, and that's like sort of a brief introduction or the intro to the actual show and then when you walk into the gallery you're going to walk in and you're going to see paintings of some figures with masks of famous archetypes civil rights leaders artists um, some people who aren't masks a lot of religious iconography and more specifically the flag is a really really big motif in my work for this particular show. I love that description of an art exhibition because you really, you were just like the audio guide walking <laughs> us through the gallery. That was perfect. And I guess you would call it a theme at this point because following your work, the masks have been part of that for at least a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of break that down because they do, they're visually stunning. They catch your attention when you see a figure with a mask covered in an illustrative piece, in a figurative piece. It really does draw you in. So kind of 
pull back the mask a little bit on what goes into that and what you're trying to represent. So what, what, what goes in it, prior to this particular body of work, I used to do large-scale portraits of people of color, really, really big paintings um, to dispel this myth about the ugliness or the violence that people of color may perpetuate on people, um, essentially an inoculation against the image of the way that people of color are portrayed in the media. Um, throughout the years, I've noticed as politics have become more and more divisive and things have become... And it's like the Wild Wild West on social media. Um, now, I was trying to think of um, just just step back and kind of process this sort of um, political environment that I was in. And so I was doing some research on uh, certain sub-Saharan African tribes where they would use masks of um, abstracted forms of their ancestors or animals to commune with these spirits in order to seek counsel for like problems that they had at that particular point in time. And so I was thinking about that in the context of America right now. And so... Um, People who come into my work, you'll see people wearing cutout masks um, in black and white of famous civil rights leaders. There's Martin Luther King represented, um, James Baldwin, Nina Simone. Eat up little seagull on a marble stand. Those are people who constantly reoccur like throughout the years just because they've influenced me on multiple levels. And so it's sort of like this way to think about an individual and a collective identity. It's like a contemporary totem to try to commune with our ancestors and figure out a way to handle some of the madness that's happening today. Picking up the paintbrush has always been personal for an artist, but I think it's fair to say that it's also becoming political for an artist. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like to, to have the power to have a canvas in front of you, have a paintbrush in your hand, and be able to make a statement like this and have a gallery that's ready to show it in a city like Detroit? Um, man. This term I, use, I say sometimes, it can be chaotic, it can be cathartic, you know, simultaneously. Um, chaotic, just because when you're trying to create a painting, it's a type of work that you, you have to sustain a process. It's not something, I'm not the type of painter that just can crank something out in five minutes. Um, it may take a month or two. Sometimes I can get something done in a week, but, you know, like it changes. And if you're trying to make a painting about the political climate, especially now, things move at a really, really rapid pace. And so something that if you try to make a painting on something that happened to day, a month from now, that story is completely gone from the media and nobody will even really know what you're talking about. That can be the chaotic part of it, trying to create work which still addresses contemporary political issues, but the issues that I'm trying to address are issues that we've had for years, like before I was born, <laughs> you know, it's like, and so it goes back that far. And so thinking about universal problems that we can solve and cathartic because we do live in a maddening world to where we constantly have this information coming in in our brains and it can be a very, very crowded room. And so it's like when I'm alone by myself in front of a canvas, I get to to have a moment of respite from that and, and sit there in peace and silence. I don't even listen to music a lot of times now. Like I'm literally just to my thoughts and the work that I'm doing and thinking about um, a very, very thoughtful way to express an idea, you know, like addressing a contemporary issue. American Gods by Tylon Sawyer is on view at the Namdi Center for Contemporary Art in Detroit until September 8th. That story was produced by Ryan Patrick Hooper of WDET in Detroit. Coming up... Our cultural and national heroes are not political leaders, are not religious leaders. They're poets. The poetic heart of Iranian culture. That's next on Studio 360. 
360. century and a half now after the Civil War, we are still trying to figure out what to do with leftover symbols of the Confederacy. It was just a year ago that white supremacists gathered in Charlottesville, ostensibly to protest the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue there. That statue, by the way, is still there. But there is one Confederate symbol that would be impossible to remove because it's a song. It's Dixie. It is, for better or worse, an American icon, and we asked Trey Kay to find out where Dixie came from and look at how it continues to divide Americans. On April 4th, 1859, while the clouds of war were gathering in America, Bryant's minstrel show, performing at a Broadway theater in New York City, was about to inject one of the most memorable and ultimately most controversial songs into the nation's bloodstream. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now my pleasure to present a new ballad written by Mr. Tambo, and I must say, against the advice of his friends. <laughs> it is entitled Dixie. This scene from a 1943 film called Dixie, starring Bing Crosby, tries to recreate the song's debut. I wish I was in the land of old times Look away. Did you catch that? When Crosby, who is in blackface, sings Old Times Dar Am Not Forgotten, he's imitating a slave dialect, as written by a white man from Ohio. Uh, it's a white person dressed as, as a black person longing for the plantation south. That's Coleman Hutchison, professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He devotes a lot of ink to Dixie in his book, Apples of Ashes, Literature, Nationalism, and the Confederate States of America. The idea is that this, this person who's singing is away from Dixie, which we understand to be somewhere in the South, and that the person is really crying out to be back there, wishing that they could be back, uh, nostalgically wishing they could be back on the plantation, uh, way, way, way down South in Dixie. This is why many people have always regarded Dixie as racist. With its happy depiction of plantation life, it seems to apologize for slavery. We can't say precisely who wrote Dixie. Daniel Decatur Emmett, a white minstrel songwriter, most often gets the credit. But Coleman Hutchison and other scholars think that he might have lifted parts of it from African-American folk tradition and invented verses of his own. One of the things that Emmett's most famous for is his ability to uh, record the purported sounds and rhythms of black speech. So this is a man who made his money uh, arranging and writing songs that would stereotype and uh, in some ways mock uh, African-American speech patterns, African-American culture. Dixie went viral. And although the North and the South were about to go at each other's throats, whites all over the U.S. loved Dixie. Abraham Lincoln had the song played at his inauguration. 
When the Confederates were voting on secession, the band played Dixie after each vote in favor. And when Jefferson Davis was inaugurated, the song was arranged to a quick-step beat, something you could sing while marching off to war. And it got lots of new verses. Southerns, hear ye country, call ye up west worse than death before ye. Two arms, two arms, two arms in Dixie. This is a Confederate version. It pledges to live or die for Dixie. It was recreated by a musician named Bobby Horton. Advance the flag of Dixie, hoorah, hoorah. For Dixie's land we take our stand and live or die for Dixie. And the Union had their answer. Again, here's Bobby Horton. Away down south in the land of traitors, rattlesnakes and alligators, right away, come away, right away, come away. Where captains, king and men are chattels, Union boys will win the battles, right away, come away, right away. Each Dixie boy must understand that he must mind his Uncle Sam. But that Yankee version didn't stick. A Northerner may have written Dixie, but it perfectly captured the warm sentiment Southerners felt for their homeland, even if they didn't live in cotton country. Dan Emmett, a Union man, was none too pleased. So he, uh, he will say on a number of occasions that he wished he'd never written the damn song uh, in the first place because if he had only known what the Confederates would do with it, if he'd only known what Southerners would claim with his song. When the bloody war finally came to a close, Lincoln asked the band to play Dixie at victory celebrations. Coleman Hutchison reads the remarks that Lincoln made at one occasion. I thought Dixie one of the best tunes I ever heard. I had heard that our adversaries over the way had attempted to appropriate it. I insisted yesterday that we had fairly captured it. I presented the question to the Attorney General, and he gave the opinion that it is our lawful prize. I asked the band to give us a good turn upon it. It sounds like Lincoln is sticking his vanquished enemies in the eye. But Coleman Hutchison sees it a little differently. I think he's really reaching out there, yes, to tweak this out a little bit, yes, to, to acknowledge that the Union had won, but also acknowledging a certain common culture in which uh, the president of the Union, who has just brought to the end the bloodiest war then known to mankind, can also acknowledge an affection for the South and, and a willingness to, to, to work to bring it back together. But Lincoln was wrong. The North had indeed won the war, but it couldn't claim Dixie. In the Reconstruction era, as Southerners became nostalgic for the antebellum way of life, they got even more attached to Dixie. Confederate heritage organizations decided on a standard version based on Emmett's original verses. But they made one important change. They removed the corny slave dialect because it wasn't about slave life anymore. It was more about Southern pride. Long into the 20th century, Dixie was popular throughout the nation, sort of like Gone with the Wind. But as the Civil Rights Movement began to make inroads in America, Dixie was a front in a new battle. 
The Virginia Military Institute is in Lexington, Virginia, situated in the majestic Blue Ridge Mountains. Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee are buried close by. When you passed Lee's tomb, you were required to salute the flag. And I, and I, and I know the way I got out of that is that I very seldom passed Lee's tomb. That's Colonel Philip Wilkerson, retired from the U.S. Army. I attended VMI as one of the first five African-American cadets. Every May, VMI has a commemoration ceremony for its cadets who died in the Battle of Newmarket during the Civil War. They helped secure a Confederate victory. For about 100 years, Dixie was a part of that ceremony. The negative connotation that Dixie held for me, it was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, it was associated with lynching, it was associated with mistreatment of individuals, not only blacks, but Jews and a bunch of other. That, that caused conflict within me. Hearing, when I heard the song, music tends to do that, tends to motivate, uh, it stirs the emotion. Those are the emotions that I felt. It caused the conflict. In 1973, after Wilkerson graduated, the student body voted to eliminate Dixie from the New Market Ceremony. One song does not take away from the valor of those uh, cadets. The student body realized what's more important, playing a old, outdated song or keeping cohesion within the Institute. And I think clearly cohesion within the Institute to president. And this, in the eyes of some, is tantamount to cultural genocide. People now are denied the use of the song because the politically correct say that it's offensive. It's a form of cultural genocide in that it's stamping out a culture that really is not a threat to anyone. Glenn McConnell is lieutenant governor of South Carolina. When the Citadel, another famous Southern college, stopped playing Dixie at sporting events in the 1990s, McConnell was critical. If we become intolerant and we start excluding things, we're on a slippery slope. And it eventually erodes that part of history, that part of the culture. Racism has occurred north and south and everywhere. And you can't change what occurred, but you can grow from it. And I don't think growing from it is excluding it. Because what happens is when you deny somebody that which they cherish, then that builds up resentment. And that's just not a good way to go. I just think the cement of a free society is toleration and incorporation. I'm Carol Mosley Braun. In 1993, I was the United States Senator from Illinois. In 1993, Carol Mosley Braun was the only African American in the United States Senate. She was locked in a power struggle with Jesse Helms over the Confederate flag. It was a technicality having to do with the patent on the flag, but symbolically, it was big. And Mosley Braun was winning the fight against the legendary Jesse Helms. The next day, I was on the Senate elevator with Senator Hatch and, and Senator Dodd, and the door opened and, and Senator Helms started to come onto the elevator, and he said to Orrin Hatch, he said, I'm going to make her cry. I'm going to sing Dixie until she cries. 
And I responded, Senator, you could sing Rock of Ages and I would cry. Did I take it as a as a jocular kind of, you know, let's be friends? No, it was not. It was intended to be hostile um, and it was intended to be aggressive. Um, you know, and I, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead because, as you know, he's he's dead now. But the fact of the matter is that he was part of um, of a cadre of senators who had made a career out of fanning the flames of racial antipathy and antagonism and using that as a way of building their own constituency by exploiting racism. Can Dixie ever shed that Jesse Helms fanning the flames baggage? The controversy isn't fading. In 2009, the University of Mississippi banned the song. But Coleman Hutchison, the University of Texas historian, thinks that we should be careful about dropping Dixie, even if we find it offensive. By, by listening to, by studying Dixie, I think we get an extraordinary opportunity to see the history of the last 150 years, from blackface minstrelsy to the inauguration of Barack Obama. Um, Dixie has been a major cultural thread uh, that can connect those disparate historical moments. Hutchison thinks that Elvis had the right idea. Yes, Elvis Presley. Elvis began performing a version of Dixie in the early 1970s. But the arrangement, by songwriter Mickey Newberry, gave Dixie a chaser, the battle hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Beautiful performances like Elvis's help us to continue to have an ongoing relationship with the song, help us to continue to find a place for it in our lives, our ways of thinking about uh, the U.S. South, about the nation, about slavery, about racism. You know, I, I wish I could quit you, Dixie. Seems like uh, something that American culture uh, would want to say to to this song, uh, but it's not going anywhere. Trey Kay produced that story in 2011. Glenn McConnell is now the president of the College of Charleston. We've talked so far about artists making work in America inspired by American society and politics. But what about artists creating work abroad in less free places? Back in 2004, I spoke to two Iranian-American emigre writers, the author and scholar Reza Aslan and the poet and journalist Roya Hakakian, who's the author of Journey from the Land of No, a memoir of growing up Jewish in Tehran before and after the Islamic Revolution. Roya begins by explaining the role of poetry in Iran after the 1979 revolution as a part of daily life as well as political rhetoric. One of the things that... um my parents do is that they get together with friends on a monthly basis and uh, they don't, instead of having, you know, cocktail parties, they have a poetry gathering, poetry nights. Um, my parents' generation really get together um, around poetry and their parties are nothing but, um, you know, a mere... Uh, getting together of people who either recite poems of uh, other great poets or their own poems. And this is basically a reflection of how Iranians really 
um, get close to each other when they want to become intimate and when they want to kind of enter that uh, private sphere uh, of each other's lives. And that's always via poetry. Um, I think poetry more than even prose or, you know, simple daily dialogue has been the way that we have reached into each other and and created um, relationships with one another. That's right. Is that something, that's something singular about it's, Persian it's at culture? The, it's at the very fabric of Persian culture. Our, our cultural and national heroes are not political leaders, are not religious leaders. Here, if you want, if you go to Washington, D.C., you go to the, the tombs of our of our patriarchs, the Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. Nothing like that exists in Iran. If you want to go to the tombs of our national heroes, they're poets. You go to Saadi's tomb. You go to Hafez's tomb. You go see the land of Omar Khayyam. It is at the very the very fabric of, of who we are. It's it's within our very language. Um, in fact, um, Persian, the Farsi language, is itself a, a deeply poetic language and, and, and gives itself very freely to um, this, this kind of poetic in, inflection. And, it, and it, it is not just a, a tiny fraction of a fraction of the super educated. This is really uh, a f- relatively widespread fact in in Iranian Persian culture. It's it's impossible to have a conversation with anyone in any class in Iranian society without them uh, sprinkling their everyday conversation, their their conversation with the butcher, their conversation with the taxi driver, uh, with poetry. It's part of our national culture, and if you cannot do it, then you're not Iranian. Roya, is there poetry that that uh, you remember as a child being recited, or or that you today use in your daily uh, life or in your work? Oh, absolutely! I I <laughs> um, actually remember these you know hundreds and hundreds of Persian poems that I grew up with, and I spent all of my adolescent years uh, really just embracing them and memorizing them, and and just reciting them. I really understood so much of Iran um, through these poetry. I understood not only something about our language and the beautiful ways, the lyrical ways in which it worked, but also something about um, what we were striving for. Because all of, almost all of our most popular poets and um, most popular poetry that people constantly recited um, made one way or, or another an allusion to um, to darkness, for instance, which, which um, you know, given that Iran was under a censorship, meant, uh, you know, the dictatorship of the Shah, or, uh, you know, they made an allusion to the oncoming dawn, which was, you know, the, the revolution. And, and we as a culture had learned uh, all of this metaphor we knew what, for instance, the red rose stood for, um, which was, you know, a prisoner or someone who had, uh, in the process of fighting the regime, uh, lost his life. We knew what um, whiteness or spring meant, especially against winter. And so um, we had in some ways created a, a secondary language next to the ordinary Persian that we spoke. And that was uh, all these beautiful lyrical codes that that we had invented in order to convey all these political messages to each other through all these poems. And, and I grew up with them, and I think I wouldn't uh, swap a line of those with, with anything else in the world. Well, now, really... now, that, now that I've heard that extraordinary uh, time of, of sort of politicized poetry, I have to ask you to recite some bit of one of them that was important to you. Um, one, of, one of my most favorite poets um, 
was a woman uh, whose name is Farooq Farooqzad. And Farooq died, unfortunately, in a car accident when she was only 33. And she wrote uh, about five books, three of which were somewhat traditional, and the last two signal her political awakening. And uh, in two of her last books, she came up at the end of a poem with, uh, you know, small haiku. Uh, it wasn't haiku, but the lines just ended uh, with, with two lines, which uh, was in itself a poem. And it said, remember flight, because the bird is mortal. And uh, we heard afterwards that uh, almost every prisoner, political prisoner, who was uh, sort of languishing in prison cells at the time of the Shah was inscribing th- those two lines on the walls of uh, their cells because it meant so much to them. Um, another short piece that I have chosen from Farooq, um, because her, her poems are very long, is, uh, is this, which I like very much. من پری کوچک غمگینی را میشناسم که در اقیانوسی مسکن دارد و دلش را در یک نیلبک چوبین مینوازد آرام آرام پری کوچک غمگینی که شب از یک بوسه میمیرد و سهرگاه از یک بوسه به دنیا خواهد آمد I know a sad little fairy who lives in an ocean and ever so softly plays her heart into a wooden flute, a sad little fairy who dies with one kiss each night and is reborn with one kiss each dawn. MashaAllah. That's very lovely. Roya Hakakian's latest book is called Assassins of the Turquoise Palace. And last year, Reza Aslan published God, A Human History. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. The show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. If you took the humor and you took his likability out of it, it's incredibly painful. The brilliance and vulnerability that propelled Richard Pryor to the top of the 1980s comedy boom. He took what could possibly be considered a tragic life and made it funny. It's the 40th anniversary of Pryor's Wanted live in concert next time on Studio 360.